You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Seasons of transition can really make us uncomfortable as we're pushed out of our comfort zones and led to have to seek the Lord to find out what's next, Lord. The last couple of months, the church of my mother-in-law has been going through a time of transition as their pastor stepped away and they've been searching for a new pastor in the last couple of months. Now, interestingly enough, I taught the first Sunday after their pastor had stepped away and just gave them a, a message of encouragement to have them seek the Lord and to be filled with the Spirit as they sought Him during the season. Then once again, about four months later, I taught on the final Sunday before their new pastor arrives next week. What a joy to see God's faithfulness to this local congregation as they've been praying and seeking God's face in this time of transition. And so for this week's podcast, I'd like to share with you that message that was recorded this last Sunday at Church on the Lake in Oklahoma, where they're awaiting their new pastor. And what a joy it has been to see God's faithfulness to them. As we've all been through transition, we wouldn't know what it's like to be on edge wondering, is God going to come through? Does God have an answer? Has God prepared everything? Are we prepared to do this transition? Lord, what's the future going to look like? And then the peace of watching God in His grace accomplish what He has set forth to do. So this is that message today, and hopefully it encourages you, like I hope it encouraged that body, as they were trusting God in their season of transition and waiting for Him to fulfill His promise to guide them and to lead them. Of course, earthly leadership is always important. Church leadership is important. But we're thankful that we have Christ as our head in and every season. It's been a few years of of new things, hasn't it? We've heard that phrase many times, a new normal. And it seems like we're constantly having to adjust to new things. And with that, in the last three years, with all these new things, there's been lots of disappointments as well expectations that haven't quite turned out the way that we had hoped or anticipated, and the world's dealing with unmet expectations and disappointments. If you think about the last couple years, the disappointment of the virus just not going away, or of elections not turning out the way that some people had hoped, or things not getting back to normal, or solutions not being effective as promised, or finances not doing what you needed them to do, or products not being available on the shelves like they had always once been, or they're too expensive. Now, whether these things are petty or important, there have been disappointments, and we've all experienced them. To be something, to be told that something you're looking forward to is is not going to happen, or at least not happen the way you anticipated, that's a disappointment. Well, in the passage today in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 22, I'm reading out the New King James Version, David has known for a while some pretty disappointing news. He has always been a man after God's heart since he was first called to be the next king of Israel. But he's been told that he won't be building the temple. Now, if you know the history of Israel, God had not called this nation to be a monarchy. He had not intended for them to ever have a king. They were to be a theocracy, a nation that was governed by God. Sure, they would have leadership and and leaders and prophets all the way going back to the days of, of Moses, but they were not to be like to be like the other nations, having a king. But in the days of Samuel the prophet, the people became foolish. They started looking around at what everyone else around them had, and they wanted the same thing. And so they cried out for a king. And Samuel said, you don't want a king. And they said, yes, we want a king. And the Lord said, they want a king, give them a king. And so they got their first king. His name was Saul, and things started out okay, but things kind of went a different direction. And then 
David was their next king, and now we're in a transition to their next king, which is going to be King Solomon. But David, the man after God's heart, this golden king of Israel, he had been told the news that he would not be building the temple. And it was something that he longed to do, something he had been prepared to do as a man after God's heart, because the worship of the God of Israel had taken place in the tabernacle all those years. This tent that God had received instruction from the Lord on the top of the mountain, he was told specifically how many cubits to make this and what materials to make this out of, and they had carried that along in the wilderness year after year after year. And even when they moved into the land, God was still dwelling in a tent, still in this tabernacle. And it didn't quite sit right with David when David finally came onto the throne after years of ditching Saul and running from Saul and Saul's finally out of the picture. David is finally reigning. Things are going well. And David is sitting there in this beautiful palace that he's built and that he's building for his name and for his kingdom and for the center of his kingdom. And he's thinking, wait a second, I've got this beautiful home and the Lord is still dwelling in a tent. I think the Lord deserves better. I think the Lord deserves this beautiful temple. And so he starts making plans and he talks to his friend David or Nathan, who is the prophet of the Lord. And he says, Nathan, what do you think? I want to build the Lord a house. And Nathan's thinking, sure, go for it, David. Everything you touch seems to turn to gold. Go for it. Well, Nathan hadn't prayed about it. He goes home that night and God speaks to him in a dream. And he, and he says to Nathan to tell David that he's not to build him a house but that God instead is going to build David a house. And of course, we know that that would come in Solomon and the kingdom would continue, but eventually be fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ coming through the lineage of David, this messianic promise. But for David, he was told firmly by the Lord at that point, no, you are not going to be building the house of the Lord, this permanent house in the temple. And so for David, he's a little bit disappointed, but he doesn't pout. He doesn't kick, his, kick the sand or sabotage the plan because he's not the one who's going to get to build it. No, he's a man after God's heart, and he's a shepherd of God's people. And even if he's not going to be in the picture, he is just excited to see God doing something in his midst. And God's ways are higher than his ways, and God's thoughts are higher than his thoughts. So we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, David's been focused on this for quite some time, but now he's starting to unravel and reveal the plan to the rest of the leadership and the rest of the nation, and also to his son Solomon, who will be the next king, that there's a house in the works. There's a building project about to come. And he says, this is the Lord's house, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. It's, it's something special. It's something holy. There were many houses in Israel. There were many barbecues in the neighborhood, but nothing are common or typical about this house and about this altar. David says, guys, do you realize how serious this is? Do you know whose house this is and whose altar you will be building? In all my years of travel, I grew up in Hawaii, so I was always having to travel somewhere. I was on the mission field in Europe, so always traveling somewhere. And one thing I really hate about travel is having to rent a car. And one reason I don't like renting that car is because it's not mine. Now, granted, that car is usually much nicer than the car I drive. It's much newer. It has far fewer miles. But it's not my car. 
And the entire time I'm driving that thing, I'm just nervous on the road. I'm more defensive than I normally am in my own car. I'm parking at the end of the parking lot on the end, so I only have one person on one side, so no one dings the door. Because I know when I return that rental car, they're going to inspect it, and they're going to check it. And if there's anything wrong with it, it's going to be on my account. It's going to show up on my credit card, and I won't get my deposit back because it's not mine. Maybe you know the feeling. You've borrowed something or used something or cared for something that's not yours. Just this heightened sense of responsibility that comes along with that. David says, I need to remind you, this is the Lord's house you'll be building. This is the Lord's altar that you will be building. When we recognize that something is is the Lord's, we go about it much differently. There's a heavy weight upon it. If you think about all the things that God entrusts to us in this life, And those things are really his in the end. They never are ours. When I remember that the person I'm married to is God's daughter or God's son, I treat them differently. When I'm reminded that those I serve with are his servants, I have grace for them. When I recall that the lost are on his heart, no matter how far gone they are, it changes my heart towards them. When I understand again that my enemy is created in God's image and he loves them with an unconditional love, I pray for them differently. When I'm reminded that the job that I have or the position I have or the finances I am blessed with are a stewardship from God, I serve there or use those things with a different perspective. Paul wrote to Colossians, the Colossians in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. No matter what he's given us, no matter what he's entrusted to us, it's not ours. It is the Lord's. And what a reverent time this is for Church on the Lake. A season of reminding that this is his church, that this is his body. And the way that you serve and the work that you do, it's not any common everyday thing. It's his and it's for his glory. A church is a living, holy thing. It's a body. It's the bride of Christ. It's a living organism, not a civic organization something that needs to be cared for in a special way. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. It was his church, which he purchased with his own blood. He paid a high price for it, treated as valuable, Paul told them. So we read now in verses 1 through 4 as David is reminding them. He says, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints, and bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance. For the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. So take a look at this. David has been making trips to Lowe's, and there's no shortage of materials at their Lowe's. Okay? There's plenty of lumber and tools. He's filled the warehouses and supply for the temple that he's about to build. And look there in verse 2. There's no shortage in the workforce. It seems like everywhere nowadays here, no one can get anyone to work. Signs everywhere, help wanted. Not in Jerusalem. There were plenty of laborers. In fact, they were coming from abroad, from over the borders, to be a part of what God was doing there. Churches try hard to get people to come, don't they? We have our strategies. We got our programs. We got our events. But you know what brings people like nothing else? It's if they hear that God is up to something. 
One thing we read about in the Gospels is the crowds that grew with Jesus' ministry as Jesus' ministry grew and as the word of God spread about what Jesus was doing. Think about this. After centuries of silence in Israel, of God doing nothing, no voice of a prophet, God was finally doing something. The Pharisees had quenched the work of God. There was not much going on at the temple, nothing really inspiring happening in the synagogues. But with Jesus, we read things like many were coming and going and the disciples did not even have time to eat because the ministry was so much, because people were flocking to the work of God. People will be drawn when God is working and allowed to work. My church ministry, my ministry ministry uh, background is actually in um, Calvary Chapel. If you've ever heard of Calvary Chapel, it came out of something that's known as the Jesus Movement. Some of you guys may have heard that, some may not have. It took place in the 60s and 70s. Basically what it was is a bunch of those hippies of the 60s and 70s were searching for everything. And when they finally found Jesus, they realized it was the one thing that they wanted to find. And the background of Calvary Chapel, the ministry that I come out of, was a pastor and his wife of a small congregation in California. He was doing the every two years, move to a new place kind of thing, because he had two years of sermons in his file folder. And so after two years, it was easy just to move over and start over again. Well, he ended up staying a little bit longer in Costa Mesa, California, because for such a spiritual reason, the surf was really good. And he liked to surf. So he stayed on and signed on for an additional two years. And he thought, now what I'm going to teach, I guess I'll just start it in Genesis and start in chapter one and keep going. And that's how he got into expositional teaching was because he had to stay a little bit longer. But they had some teenagers at the time and their teenagers knew some hippies. And they started watching this whole movement of hippies thinking they are so lost. They're looking for some hope, some fulfillment, some, some meaning in life. And they're looking in all the wrong places. And so they began to pray, Lord, help us meet a hippie. And they had some high school students, and like, if you ever meet a hippie, bring them home. We want to meet these hippies. And so they would go over the bluffs and look out at the beach where they would all be doing things they shouldn't be doing, and they would just pray. They didn't know how to reach them. And they had this small congregation of about 25 people, and all they did is they just knew how to pray. Well, suddenly, sure enough, they met one hippie. And from that one hippie, then they met like five hippies. And suddenly these hippies started sharing about this middle-aged balding man who just taught in Genesis, and then he moved on to Exodus, and he went on to Leviticus, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, but it was the word of God. And he spoke straight to them, and they began to get saved. They were born again, and then they'd go back to their other hippies and say, something's different about you. Yeah, something's different about me. Jesus saved me. Well, I want to meet this Jesus. Okay, come. This bald guy will tell you about him. And so they'd come, and this bald guy started, and it just started growing and growing where they started coming from three hours away because God was doing something there. The board had a little problem with it because they just put in brand new carpet in the sanctuary. And now all these barefoot, dirty hippies started coming in, and they think, what are we going to do about the carpet? So they showed up the next week, and this bald, middle-aged pastor was tearing out the carpet they had just laid down. And he said, if our carpet will keep them from hearing the word of God and about Jesus Christ, then we don't need this brand new carpet. And so he tore it out, and they were filling the aisles, and they were coming, and suddenly these these new hippie Christians who were about six months in the Lord were driving three hours and they couldn't afford the gas anymore. So they started the Bible study three hours away and people started going there to that house. And then people started going there. And it just, it was something that no one planned, no one strategized, but it was a work of the Holy Spirit. And people came because they heard God was doing something. People are coming to Jerusalem. They're saying something's going on here. We want to be a part of this. We know that we're not of, of the covenant. We know that we're not of Israel, but we want to be drawing near to whatever it is that is going on here. Now, what David is doing here, look at all the things that he gathers. He's gathering the hewn stones. He's gathering this iron for abundance and, and the, the uh, what is it here, the bronze in abundance and the cedar trees in abundance. 
this is, I kind of joked about Lowe's earlier, that you couldn't go down to Lowe's and buy these things. I mean, these were things that you had to bring in. The cedars alone, they would chop them up there in Sire, and then they would take them down to the Mediterranean Sea and then float them down the coast and then travel them overland. I think uh, Jerusalem was like something like 50 or 100 miles inland to get these things here. Now, David is doing all this, even though David is not going to do any of the building. He's preparing all these materials, though. In this church, God is preparing to build in a new season. And God has brought all the materials together, each with giftings and abilities. God is such a good father, he always prepares for the things he's about to do. And he brings everything that's needed together to do that. And right now, even sitting in this room, some people in the body of Christ are stones. They are solid in their faith. They've got a firm foundation. They've got wisdom. They stand upon the word of God and they don't move from it. Some people in the church are iron. They've got strength. They've got tools. They are work, they're workers. They're very dependable. They're always there. They are faithful. Some people in the, in the church, they're bronze. They're ornamentation. They're there for ceremonial type of things. They're gifted in ways that put them in the center of the worship setting. You may even see them up here on Sunday mornings. Some people in the body of Christ, they're trees. They've got gifts that give life to other people. They have many uses. They, they attribute to the growth. They can bend and they're flexible the trees in the body of Christ. And we see here literally that God had brought all these things together for this project that they're about to do, but God has done those things here as well. God has brought the giftings together. The gifting of a pastor teacher is just one gift in the body of Christ, and it's not the only gift that is required, and you guys have been faithful to continue on without that pastor teacher in the pulpit week in and week out. And now that God has seen that you've been faithful in the little things, he says, okay, good. Now I can give you that pastor and teacher. What an exciting time for you. David has the foresight to see that all these things are needed. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a reason why he has each and every single one of you here in this church for such a time as this. Now, David's been doing all this gathering and this collecting, and we see now David addresses his son Solomon, who will be the one to build this thing. We look at verses 5 through 10. It says, Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around, and his name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Did you guys catch what David acknowledges first back in verse 5? He says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. Wow, what a confidence booster, right? All right, we're going to hand this over to you, and you are young and you are inexperienced. But you know what? This didn't disqualify him. It actually wasn't an insult. Solomon was young and inexperienced, but so was David when he was called to be the king of Israel. 
he was young and inexperienced. And God did some great things in and through David when he was young and inexperienced because he was dependent upon his God when he was young and inexperienced. We can be young and inexperienced and be total fools. We can also be young and inexperienced and therefore for be fully dependent and relying on God. We are in danger when we think we are old and full of experience sometimes. In church planting, many organizations will send out their best of the best, requiring seminary degrees, even master's degrees, some of them. And I told you a little bit about my background with Calvary Chapel. Um, I don't know why they let us go out. Because our team of missionaries, we were young Bible college students. We went through a Bible college program for two years in Austria. We're going over the border into Slovenia every weekend to do a Bible study. And I remember when our two years was up, it was finally time to cross the border for the last time. We were going as church planters. I was the oldest person on the team. I was 24 years old. Everyone else on my team was 19 and 20. I remember we packed up the one car we had. It was a 1990 Renault, Cle- Renault 5 or something like that. It was a French-built car. It was a little, a little red thing, a little European car. We stuffed that thing in the back so much. We got everything in. One of the pastors came down to the parking lot to pray us off. It was our final send-off from the Bible college. And we're getting ready to get in. He's got, you, you got everything in. One of the girls was going down with us. We had three female missionaries and uh, my assistant pastor and I. She's like, wait a second, the money. And we're like, what do you mean the money? She said, well, I have all the money for my deposit for the apartment I'm going to rent and the first three months of rent. I've got all that. I put it in a paper bag somewhere, but I can't find it. We're like, what? Like all the money that we have for this team for the first three months of being down there, you put it in a paper bag and we don't know where it is. We're unpacking this car, trying to put it in, and the pastor, he's just there like, I'm about to send these people out to plant a country, plant a church in a country that there's no ministry from our organization in right now. I'm surprised they didn't take the keys from us at that time, but they did let us cross the border, and you know what? We had no idea what we were doing at all. I remember thinking, where's our pastor? Should we call them and write them? What do we do today? We, all we had was the Bible, we had a time of prayer once a day, and we had the Holy Spirit. And you know what? God started to do something because we were young and inexperienced, but we were totally dependent upon God. And we were looking to God for every step along the way. And it was a blessing. You know, it is a blessing when a church has leaders full of wisdom, full of experience, full of maturity, full of influence. When the the church has respect in the community and people who know what they're doing. But that can also be a dangerous place to be because we can depend on man and not depend upon God. That's one reason why David's predecessor, Saul, was removed by the Lord. He started off small and humble in the Lord's eyes. But then he started saying, okay, Lord, thanks for the training. I will take it from here. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel rebukes Saul shortly after Saul becomes king. And Saul says, or Samuel says to him, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? That's when God picked Saul and was able to use him for a season. But Saul's downfall came when he grew confident in himself and was no longer little in his own eyes. Solomon was young and inexperienced, but he would be the third king of Israel. And God wanted a man who was young and inexperienced because it meant that he would need the Lord if there were to be any success and that God would get all of the glory. David has two building projects going on here. The first one is real estate. It's the temple. The second building project is Solomon. All that David is doing in this chapter is to make Solomon successful. 
David will earn no dividends, at least not politically or earthly, for what he's doing here. We are called to make a next generation investment. You see, the church is always one generation away from extinction. And preserving the faith and the gospel is a work God is committed to. And he charges us to be committed to it as well as we consider the next generation. For example, Paul wrote to Timothy, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of reliable witnesses, entrust to other men who will also be qualified to teach others. He said, Timothy, pass these things on. As I've passed them on to you, now you pass them on to others. Titus wrote to the older women in the church, telling them, The older women likewise should be teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Titus asking them to disciple the younger women in life and the things of the word. Jesus' whole ministry to raise up disciples to carry on the work of God was based on mentoring. It says, after spending a night in prayer, Jesus went up on a mountain, and we read in Mark 3, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Notice, they'd be learning from him in life alongside of him, and that was the first priority. And then it goes on, and that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. The preaching and the power of ministry were just part of it. But to be with him was actually Jesus' priority because that is where they would become more like him. Funny, years later when these disciples got in trouble in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection and, and his ascension, they had healed the lame man outside of the temple, and this is what the leaders concluded. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they, had, that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus that that was the secret of all their power, that was the secret of the fruit of their ministry, that was the secret of the, the effectiveness of the word that they preached. It was because that they had been with Jesus. We need to be with Jesus, and we need to be people who have been with Jesus, but also be with people who have been with Jesus. There's a huge need to see people discipled in the faith, to be mentored in the things of faith. We live in a very Christian culture, but very few who know the depths of what it means to walk deeply with Jesus. Jesus had the crowds, but Jesus also had his disciples. And though Jesus has his disciples, he also had his 12. And though Jesus had his 12, Jesus also had his three, Peter, James, and John. He, he was a bit closer to them. It's usually the job of a mentor to reach out to a mentee. I think of a profound verse in Acts, in Acts chapter 11, verse 25. It says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, who had become Paul the apostle. Barnabas, the encourager in the church in Jerusalem, he's like, there's a guy there with so much potential, but he's pretty rough around the edges. And everyone's afraid of him. They won't let him come to service because they think he's going to, like, pull something on them. I'm going to go to him. He went to Tarsus to seek him and said, I'm going to brush off this guy. I'm going to take him under my wing. I'm going to help shave off the rough edges and refine him to be better used. I remember when I was in college, I had been a Christian for a few years. My parents got saved. I was about 12 years old and had kind of done the youth group thing and then went off to college and it was like suddenly like my faith and I had to try and figure it out on my own. And I remember a campus ministry, and there was a guy there who was leaving this campus ministry. He was probably 20 years older than me, and he came to me one day, and he said, hey, would you like to go for a Whopper? Whoppers at the time were 99 cents. They are no longer 99 cents. 
But this guy spent one hour a week with me over a Whopper. And it wasn't always like an intense Bible study or anything like that. We just talked. How's school? How's this? How's your faith? Oh, you're going on a mission to Slovenia this summer. That's interesting. Tell me more about that. The scripture was open sometimes. Other times, we just talked about life. But I was really excited to have this older Christian man who just took an interest in me and bought me a 99-cent Whopper as a poor college student in the 90s. Such a blessing to have them do that. It was funny because years later, I actually emailed this guy. We're still in contact. But I emailed him because I found myself now, I was in Slovenia, I was the older guy in my 20s, but I was the older guy, and I was inviting high school students out for coffee in Slovenia to go just talk about life. Sometimes the Bible would be open, sometimes we were just sharing about life, but it was a mentoring going on of one generation sharing with the next generation. And I wrote him and said, thank you for your 99-cent Whoppers. They really modeled for me what it meant to be purposeful in seeking out and searching for those who might need a little bit of strengthening and encouragement in the next generation. And trust me, all the generations below you desperately need to figure out how to walk with Jesus. And what the Bible really says, not what people are starting to tell them, well, it actually means this. Mentoring is something that each generation needs to be shown how to live and what is right. I read about when elephants overcrowded South, Africans, uh, South Africa's Kruger National Park, and the government then authorized killing adult elephants and relocating their children to other parks in the region. As the orphan male elephants became teenagers, they were clueless about what normal behavior looks like. When their testosterone levels spiked, the orphaned males turned aggressive. In one park, they savagely killed 36 rhinos, a park ranger watched as one elephant knocked over a rhino, trampled it, then drove a tusk through its chest. The situation was out of control. Then rangers brought six adult bull elephants into one of the parks. They mentored the younger bulls to see what normal behavior looked like. No, no more rhinos were killed after the bigger bulls arrived. Doesn't that sound familiar? One generation not guided in how to live, acting out in ways that they should not. Look at what's going on in the world today. Look at what the next generation is doing. Gender confusion, and we wonder why. Masculinity and femininity are passed on. If you've never read the book by John Eldridge, Wild at Heart, I encourage you to do that. I don't agree with all that he writes, nor with all of his theology, but men, if you've not read it, regardless of your age, it will explain a lot about yourself, Wild at Heart. And women, if you've not read it, regardless of your age, it will explain a lot about the men in your life and the boys in your life. But a generation not knowing how to be men or women because people are too busy and distracted to show them how or other influences are stepping in and confusing them on how to do it, and it's totally wrong. For Aaron and I, as we started this transition to come back to the United States, we asked the Lord, what would our next season of ministry look like? And I felt like the Lord was very clear that it would not necessarily be continually to a flock of God's people, but that we were to shepherd the flock of God that was among us. And whenever God brought the flock among us, we were to help shepherd it. And one of the key weekends where God really spoke to me and told me, first of all, that we were moving to Oklahoma is from Acts chapter 8. But also it said that Philip left the revival that was going on in Samaria and he went down to the desert for that Ethiopian eunuch and he went down for one person. And I said, I felt like the Lord was saying to me that in your next season, a lot of times you will be ministering one-on-one. -on -one. I will bring you one person in your life 
for one minute or one conversation or one hour or one season, and you'll minister to that one person. And they're just as valuable, what I'm doing in their life, than if you were to be in the revival that was going on in, in Samaria. And it's interesting to see, we've been back in the United States for 10 years now, working in public schools, to see how many individuals continue in our life. Erin just got an email from a former student. She does a Bible study before school once a week. This week, she had one person in attendance. But she also then shared that online with another student who used to be there who's now attending college first semester in, and he's like, guess what they're teaching us here? Thank you so much for sharing the word of God and giving that foundation and continuing to do so. One guy reached out to me about four years ago, a former student. He had been out of high school for about two years and called and said, hey, can I just meet with you? Was just really feeling disillusioned with where things were. He was the only one in his peer group who was following Jesus. We sat down, had a couple burgers together. I'm doing his wedding in about six months because he's still walking with the Lord. So neat to see that one-on-one -on -one ministry. One friend called me this week with great news. He's probably about 15 years younger than I am. He's in the military. He got stationed somewhere else for about two years. We met weekly for coffee. Now he's somewhere else. He called me to say, hey, guess what? I met someone. Could you please be praying for me and her as we take our next steps together? Another sent me the text, a text the other night at 1130, a former student. Him and his wife are going through some hard things that he needed to share with just someone late at night to pray for them. And so I did. David was young and inexperienced. But he did all that he could to set up the next generation for success and the kingdom as well because he was passing this kingdom on to Solomon. Now, you can imagine what Solomon is feeling here. He's probably shaking in his boots a little bit. What, you're giving me all this? I didn't know all that stuff you were bringing in, all that, all that timber and all that. I didn't know what you were doing. That's for me to have to work with. I've never done a building project. What am I supposed to do, Dad? Well, we look in verses 11 through 13. It says, now, my son... May the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Interesting, the encouragement that David has here for Solomon. He says, may the Lord be with you. He says to him, may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. We know that this stuck with Solomon because in 1 Kings chapter 3, when he's finally king and David is gone, what's one of the first thing he prays for? God, give me wisdom. And what do we have? We have his wisdom. Where do we turn for wisdom off in life? We turn to Proverbs, which much of it was written by, written by who? It was written by Solomon. Aaron knows someone interesting enough, and she was talking to him recently, and he was talking about how he came to know the Lord, the only one in his family who knows the Lord. And so she asked him some questions, and he said that he was in the military. He was overseas, and he was bored, and he started reading a Bible. And he got to Proverbs 21, verse 9, and it says, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And he stopped and he said, That's really true. And he's like, This is so wise. That verse actually led him to Christ. He said, if this verse is true and I see wisdom in this, then I think the gospel is going to be true as well. And it led him to come to Christ. Funny the things that God will sometimes use to bring people to him, but that's the verse that did. It was a verse written by Solomon because the wisdom of the scripture, the wisdom of the word of God. David reminds him there in verse 12, keep the law of the Lord your God. If you will be seeking the Lord, if you know that the Lord is with you, 
if you will um, seek wisdom and understanding, and if you'll keep the Lord of the Lord, the word of the Lord your God, then you will be blessed in all that you do. Do you know that there was a, 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 uh, something that they had to do, the new king in Deuteronomy 17? The new king had to take the entire law of Moses and copy it by hand when they became king to make sure they knew what everything said and they weren't missing anything. Reminds me of school when your teacher made you write sentences from the board. I will not do this. I will not do this. I will not do this. The king had to write every sentence from the entire law in his own hand so that he would make sure to keep all of it. And verse 13 there, he says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So that's his word of encouragement to Solomon. But now he turns to the leaders. And we finish here in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 17 through 19. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Did you guys catch that here? David has a word for his leaders because his leaders are now going to be Solomon's leaders. And that's one of the hardest things in the transition of a church is when the new leader comes in, the old people who served in the old regime now having to get new, used to the new regime, if I can use the word regime. This can be very, very hard. But David's word to them was, help Solomon. He is young. He is inexperienced. It's going to be a different work. Remember, too, David's was a reign of bloodshed. Solomon's is going to be a reign of peace. They have to get used to maybe finding some new jobs or some new things to do because they may not be doing all the things they did before as they move into this new season. But the final word that he has for the leaders, the final word that he has for Solomon, and the final word that I believe he has for Church on the Lake is verse 19. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. You see, the tendency is, is when we get some kind of instruction or direction, then we go on autopilot. Okay, God, we got it from here. That's one reason why the Lord doesn't always give us the whole picture, does it? Six months ago, the Lord could have said, your pastor is stepping away on this particular Sunday, then you will have four months of guest speakers, and on week seven or whatever, your new pastor, your future new pastor will preach, and then the board will meet on this week, and so on and so, so forth. What seeking would you have had to do as a congregation if God had given you the entire picture? God has shown himself faithful through these last months, but the seeking is not over. Part of the interim of these four months was to get you as a body all praying and looking to Jesus as the head. But come next Sunday, it's not time to go on autopilot, but continue to seek Jesus. Together with the new leadership, Jesus is still the head, but individually, as families, as a church, as a nation, verse 19, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. The church on the lake has a call to remain faithful, to work with Jesus until his return, just like every church and just like every follower of Christ. I pray that he returns quickly. I believe that he will return soon. So let's find out where Jesus is working and let's join him so we can get out of here. Not only today, but in the future as well. And be encouraged by David's words to Solomon. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Let's build what is left for him to build. Lord, we thank you so much for the promise and hope of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and that you have a purpose, God. 
that in everything, Lord, where we stumble and walk in the darkness, where we don't know the directions and the ways that we go, as we cry out to you, Lord, you are faithful to give us wisdom. Lord, your word tells us if any of us lacks wisdom, to let, it ask, let us ask of you and you'll give it to us abundantly. So Lord, for anyone today who's lacking wisdom, I pray that you would guide them and direct them. Father, that you would show them what the next step is, even if it's just the next step. May they hold on to that and cling to that in hope and be faithful and obedient in that next step, Lord. And they, as they're faithful in that step, may you show them the next step after that. And God, we thank you and praise you for your protection and preservation of Church on the Lake in the last season. And God, we breathe a sigh of relief knowing that you've been faithful still once again. And God, with expectation as you bring another servant of the Lord into this body, we look with expectation. And Lord, we pray that everyone would look to you, that we would seek you. And as we are faithful to seek you, that we would find you and know what your heart is, what your plans are, what your purpose is. And Lord, in, may all, in all these things, may you receive the glory, the honor, and the praise for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in on this episode as you heard a live recording of encouragement to a church that had gone through a season of transition as they were seeking the Lord their God to find out what their next steps might be. What a blessing it was to be a part of that process, even a little bit, just to teach the first weekend without their pastor and then the final week before they receive their new pastor. Hopefully it blesses you and encourages you in your season of transition. May God give you wisdom as you seek him.